Welcome back to Launchpad on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School, Sirius XM, Channel 111. I'm your host, Carl Ulrich. I'm Vice Dean of Entrepreneurship and Innovation at the Wharton School, where I teach entrepreneurship, innovation, as well as product design. I'm super lucky to be joined now by Mary Biggins, who's the co-founder of Neil Powell. Mary, thanks for joining us. Hey, thanks so much for having me. All right. So first things first, I want to point our listeners to your website. You've got a great domain, and it's just mealpal.com. So mealpal.com. If you're someplace yep. safe at a web browser, preferably not driving your car, you can feel free to, to check it out. Mary, give us the elevator pitch for Mealpal. Yeah, so Mealpal lets you get lunch every weekday for less than $6 per meal. We partner with thousands of restaurants and cities around the U.S. and actually around the world now and uh, offer a really great value. So you're paying, you know, really just $6 and uh, a really efficient and affordable routine. Wow. I have, I have struggled with lunch my whole life. I feel this is a huge pain point. And I now live most of my time in San Francisco, and I, I can't get the beverage with my lunch for $6 in San Francisco. So that's quite the benefit <laughs> yes. proposition. Tell us a little bit more about how this service works. So let's say... Yeah. Uh, I want to sign up. I'm, I'm convinced. How do I, how yeah. does it work? Yeah. So the way it works is we sort of reimagined what a menu really is. And so, you know, typically you go to one restaurant and you see a menu of, you know, maybe 10 or 15 different items. With MealPal, we partner with hundreds of different restaurants, but each restaurant will only offer one menu item per day. So in San Francisco, we have over 200 restaurants on the platform. And each of those restaurants has got sort of like a, a daily special. And so you'll be able to log in uh, either to the app or the website starting the night before at 5 p.m. And you'll see each of those 200 different meals that you can choose from. And uh, we know that people like to know exactly what they're getting. So you'll see a picture of the exact item and you'll know all of the ingredients. Uh, you'll be able to select what time you want to pick the meal up at. So anytime between 11 a.m. and 3 p.m. And then uh, you'll be able to reserve your meal. And then when you go to get your meal, you'll be able to skip the line because, you know, your meal will be already ready, already paid for. You can be in and out of the restaurant in less than 30 seconds and not have to stand in, in those long lunchtime lines. So give me a sense of what I might see on the website today. I'm, I, I want lunch tomorrow. I'm in, I'm in San Francisco, south of market. Roughly what might be some of my options? Yeah. So um, in San Francisco, we've got actually a lot of really healthy options. We found that's what a lot of people like. So lots of poke bowls, um, you know, poke or sushi burritos mm -hmm. tend to sell really well. Um, mm. We also have some really great salad options. So at Soma Eats, we've got a, a salmon salad. That's one of the most popular meals on the platform. Um, you know, we've also got, got plenty of things for when you want something more filling, whether that's a flatbread pizza or a burger and fries. Um, or, or, you know, uh, tacos. Yeah. So let's say that's that salmon sa salad at Soma Eats. I, I say, okay, I want that. It, mm -hmm. Tell me about the experience when I go to pick it up. So how yeah, does it so, actually work? Yeah. So Soma Eats is so popular. There's actually a, certainly going to be a line there at, you know, 1230 most right. days at lunchtime. And so when you walk in, you really just walk right up to the register to where people are picking up their meals. And if you say, you know, if you're with MealPal and you tell them your name, they'll have your meal ready for you. So mm. you can be in and out um, really quickly. Wow. That's awesome. That's really awesome. Okay. And there's also, I, I did poke around on the website a little bit before the interview and, and you also have an innovation in the way you, it, it's, um, 
in 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 the unit you buy, right? So you buy a month yep. worth. Is that yep. right? So talk a little bit about yeah, that. Yeah, that's about right. Pricing. So we yeah. have two different plans that consumers can choose from. We have a twenty meal plan, which really covers every weekday lunch. Right. And for the twenty meal plan, you're paying five dollars and ninety nine cents per meal, and that lasts for a thirty day period. Or if you don't want to use MealPal every day and, you know, you have some of your lunches already scheduled or you travel a lot, we have a 12-meal plan. And you pay $6.39 per meal for the 12-meal plan. Mm. And are there rollover burritos or not? Um, so we actually do have a plan that lets you have rollover meals as well. It's okay. uh, priced a little bit differently. That plan is at six ninety nine, dollars And in that I plan, the, the meals never expire. So yeah. for people who are traveling a lot or really need that additional flexibility, we do have that option. Right. So the idea that there'll be some fraction of no-shows is sort of baked into the pricing. Or yeah, not a no-show, a, a no-use. Yeah. Yeah. We, we think from the consumer's perspective, and we know that consumers want something that's both affordable and convenient at lunchtime. And, you know, if somebody has the 12 meal plan and they only end up using 10 or 11 meals, they still end up saving a lot of money. And we know consumers are constantly doing that math. Yeah. So I got to ask about the benefit proposition to the restaurant, because I mean, seriously, people who don't live in San Francisco probably don't know this, but you, you can't get anything for $6 in San Francisco. I mean, it, 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 yeah. it, you know, when I go to my grocery store just or to the buffet line at the deli, it's, it's you know, it's $13, $14, no yeah. question. So, so yeah. how does this work for the restaurant? Yeah, so that's right. So you know, just so you know, the meals that you're getting on MealPal, they do normally retail for 12 to $15. Right. So you are getting a really great savings. The way that we're able to do that is because we're really helping restaurants with their labor costs. So um, for restaurants, labor is actually the biggest cost that they have. That accounts for uh, over 35% of their total cost. Um, it's much more than food. Food is usually about 25% of a restaurant's cost. And so because on MealPal, each restaurant is only offering one meal per day, they get a lot of efficiencies of scale because they're making a lot of the same thing at once. So if you think about, uh, you know, a big catering order, a restaurant loves catering orders because they're able to have economies of scale and use fewer labor resources in order to get a lot of meals out the door. Mm. And the concept with MealPal is pretty similar because they're only focused on one meal per day for MealPal customers. They can make a lot of volume of that meal much more efficiently than making a bunch of individual orders for people coming in and ordering custom things off the menu. And it's also that you don't have to make anything on spec. Because every one of those meals is paid for. That's right. We um, we actually are able to even predict for the restaurants how much volume they're going to get. So at 9.30 a.m. every morning, we'll send the restaurants a final quantity of orders and, you know, we give them projections ahead of time as well. Mm. But it lets them plan really well, both from a food perspective and making sure they have the right supplies, but also from a labor perspective and making sure they're going to be staffed correctly during the lunchtime rush. Yeah, I, I know that this number will vary by restaurant and by city, but approximately how many orders might a restaurant be doing for meal power? Are we talking about 10 or are we talking about 100? Yeah, we have some restaurants that are doing many hundreds per day and, and wow. you know, are really driving a really big part of their business right now. So, you know, since we launched uh, about 18 months ago, we've done now over 4 million reservations for lunch. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. Tell us, Mary, where where this idea come from? Yeah, so it, it came really from a personal frustration. I've always struggled to get lunch. I, um, you know, I hate standing in line, and 
uh, frequently would find it, you know, three o'clock in the afternoon and I hadn't had anything to eat yet. And I'd end up eating M&Ms or crackers or whatever was around the office. And so really wanted to come up with a way to make lunch more efficient and actually had the idea when I was at a Whole Foods and noticed that it was lunchtime and they were doing a really good lunch business. And because Whole Foods is preparing its prepared foods at such scale, they had pretty good um, pricing. And as a consumer, it didn't feel really expensive. And so I started to think, what if a local restaurant, what if, you know, my favorite pad thai restaurant could make a lot of the pad thai that I love and have those same efficiencies and thus be able to sell it for a lower price? So, you know, from that point on, started talking to restaurants to really understand their model and, and, and built out our first market. Now, so you made this, this curious choice, which I think is is quite smart, but I wonder what goes behind it, which is that you're not going to try to deliver this. And that's got to be dramatically easier uh, uh, on your end. But the question is, on the consumer side, do most consumers think that, oh, it's no big deal. If I don't, if I don't need to wait, I don't mind making yeah. a two-minute walk. How did you think about yeah. that trade-off? Because almost certainly you considered whether you would do delivery or not. Yeah, so we're really focused on changing how people eat, not just once a month or a couple of times per month, but really changing routines on a daily basis. And Mm -hmm. delivery is something that's not going to be affordable for most consumers on a daily basis. And so we wanted to think about how we could create a product that could be used on a daily basis by people in cities around the world, no matter um, kind of what pay scale they're at or where they are in their career. And so you know, delivery, as you mentioned, it is really complicated and it adds so much to the price. And so we realized that if we created a convenient pickup process, so customers could be in and out of the restaurant really quickly, um, that it would be a really compelling value proposition. And, you know, I think that combined with, uh, you know, it's good for people to get out of the office and to take a walk and to, to reset before the afternoon. So I think a lot of people really like kind of being forced out of the office and, and, you know, getting away from their desk for a few minutes can really make them even more productive. Yeah. Okay. So walk us through the next step. You had an epiphany in Whole Foods, but what did you do then? And and yeah. how did you validate, how'd you develop the concept and validate it? Yeah. So we started talking to restaurants. I Well, first I, I convinced my co-founder to join me. Um, we were uh, friends since college and she knows the marketing and sales space really well and is also uh, really great at knowing what food is good and, and just, uh, you know, I think it defines uh, foodie very much so. So mm-hmm. um, we started talking to restaurants in Miami. I was based in Miami at the time, and it was really serendipitous because in Miami there weren't as many different food startups that were approaching restaurants. You know, in San Francisco yeah. and New York, there are so many people knocking on the door of restaurant owners every day, whether it's a delivery service or something for front of house or back of house. And so, in Miami, we didn't have that same competition, mm-hmm. and the restaurant owners that we interacted with were so helpful, and they really told us about the challenges that they faced at lunchtime and what they what they wanted and what worked and what frustrated them. And so we were able to use those conversations to launch the first version of the site. We had about 40 different restaurants in Miami all on board for the first version, and it's really where we got so many of our, our really early, really valuable learnings. So how... This this is you have to both acquire the 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 retailer that is you have to acquire the restaurant and the consumer here. Yeah. Uh, wh- wh- which is harder? Uh, you know, depends on the day. Um, yeah. You know, it, 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 they're both hard. I think uh, one of the fun things about a marketplace is that you've got to kind of get both sides of the market going. 
at the right time. And, you know, if you have consumers come to use the site and you don't have a lot of restaurants, then it's not going to be a very good value proposition for them and they're not going to come back. At the Mm -hmm. same time, if you have restaurants on the site and they're not getting any orders, then they're not going to stick around either. And so, um, you know, we we do kind of go back to the adage of uh, who says there's no such thing as a free lunch because with MealPal, when we launch in a new market, we really do give away uh, a decent number of free lunches to companies in the area so that we can get the market going quickly. Um, we'll spend about a month getting restaurants on board, and we try to keep that timeline as short as possible so we can keep the restaurants engaged. And then we'll have a launch event, and, and everyone who comes to that launch event will get a number of free meals to try it out, and that gets some volume going through the marketplace from the very first day. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Launchpad on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School, Sirius XM, Channel 111. I'm your host, Carl Ulrich, and I'm speaking with Mary Biggins, who's the co-founder of MealPal, and they're at mealpal.com. Uh, Mary, I wonder if you could walk us through the timeline. The, the, the pilot or initial launch in Miami of 40 restaurants was, was when? What, 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 that, was, when? Uh, that was in January of 2016. Okay, so I, I just looked on Crunchbase, and I don't know how accurate this data is, but it shows that you raised in early 2017, so that would have been a little more than a year later, you raised $15 million, and then just six or seven months later raised another $20 million. So I wonder if you could walk us through the financing milestones. Did you bootstrap until that first, till that Series A of $15 million? Or did you have some seed financing? And and how could you? How many? What does it really take to do that pilot with forty restaurants? Uh, give give our give our listeners a sense of the financing milestones. Yeah, so we did have some seed financing. Um, you know, we were really lucky to have really helpful investors involved early on. So, um, you know, we raised a really small round before we launched in Miami, and then uh, you know another round after that. Um, I think. One thing that we were really focused on, though, was getting to market really fast. So we didn't want to spend a lot of money trying to get things perfect. We really had a much stronger bias for action. So, um, you know, we had set uh, sort of an eight-week-long timeline for, for getting to the launch date and had milestones that we had to meet really every three days, whether it was from an engineering perspective or a product perspective or uh, a restaurant partnerships perspective. And... Uh, we were pretty disciplined on following those timelines, and, and we, when we launched, we knew that our product wasn't perfect. In fact, it's really slightly embarrassing. There were a lot of things that we wish looked better or um, functioned better or where the technology was better, but we were so focused on figuring out if there was product market fit. Um, and we had to find out if there was product market fit both for the restaurants, where it was just a concept and something that they told us that they thought would work, but they hadn't experienced before. And we had to see if there would be product market fit for consumers. We didn't know if consumers would be comfortable with only ordering, you know, in advance or seeing a different type of menu or walking to get their lunch. And so, uh, you know, the, the focus was always on getting to market quickly. And if we found that we had product market fit, then we could go back and, and start perfecting all of the things that we had really rushed in order to launch. And did you feel like you you dialed in the product market fit question in one location in Miami before you then went to scale it to other locations? So we didn't. That probably would have been a good approach. But Mm. as we were building Miami, we noticed that there were some differences in the Miami market. Uh, You know, it's a bit more of a transient market and people are a bit more likely to go out for lunch and to take longer lunches, whereas 
you know, in other markets, in New York or San Francisco, people are more likely to bring lunch back to the office. And so as we were building Miami, we realized that it might not react the same way as other markets. And so we wanted to be able to have another uh, proof point sort of simultaneously. And so we launched Boston about two weeks after Miami. And wow. uh, I'm from, from the Boston area originally, so it was, uh, I don't want to say an easy launch, but a little bit easier in that I had a good lay of the land and I knew what areas we should focus on and which restaurants were important. And it was really valuable uh, in hindsight to have the data of the launch in Miami and the launch in Boston and to really use that to strategize for which markets we should focus on next. Mm -hmm. And would you say you got it right in Boston then before scaling to other locations? I would say, yeah, I would say that we we certainly didn't get it right. We still don't have it quite right. But I would mm -hmm. say that we, we learned a lot. We learned enough to understand that um, that it was a product that would work well in other markets and that we should have a strong bias for action. What what did you have to have? What did you have to have proven or well established before February of 2017 when you raised that 15 million dollars? Yeah, so I think we had to had to show that it was working for both sides of the marketplace. So mm -hmm. uh, that meant that the restaurants that we were partnering with were were happy that they liked the orders they got from MealPal, um, that they they really thought about us as a valuable partner and a long term partner in their business. We also had to see the product market fit on the consumer side and see that there was good traction. So, um, you know, continued growth in terms of subscriber numbers and revenue and, and seeing that customers were sticking with the service month after month. Now, and then I'm, I'm curious about this short, this short time between the 15 million and the 20 million. It looks like the 20 million was just last month that that, that was raised. Was, was that mostly your Series A investors who had said initially, look, when you need more, more cash to juice the growth, we'll provide it? Or so in a sense, was it really a two-part investment or was it a, really a distinct fundraising round? Yeah, so they were separate rounds. Uh, you know, the, the Series A announcement was in February. Um, I can't share too many other details than the fact that we announced it in February. But Okay, so uh, it, it, you, it was in the works before that is effectively what you're saying. Okay. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Okay. Exactly. But the Series B was, it was a separate round. We had participation from all of our existing investors, but uh, brought in a new, a new investor. So Menlo Ventures led the Series B. Mm-hmm. Great. All right. So I want to, geez, this all sounds just so straightforward. You know, you just like did this thing. And, and, and I, I think our listeners may benefit from knowing that, that you had founded a previous venture. And so I wonder if you could just speak a little bit about ClassPass and the difference, a little bit about that business and the difference between what you learned between ClassPass and MealPal. Yeah, so uh, so many good learnings from ClassPass. I think throughout my career, I've sort of followed this trajectory of starting at a bigger company and then going to a slightly smaller but still pretty big company and, and, and continuing to go small until I was, you know, the fifth employee at someone else's startup until I mm -hmm. finally was able to, to make that jump and start my own company. I think um, it, it's definitely easier in some ways the second time around, but, but also more challenging in, in ways as well. Um, with ClassPass, I think one of the things that we learned was how important it was to find product market fit and, uh, and to make sure that you had it right on both sides of the marketplace. And so that was something that at the beginning of MealPal, we were really focused on and spent a lot of time really trying to make sure that our restaurants were happy and consumers were happy to make sure we were building something that would be sustainable. Um, I think another thing, you know, that, that was helpful from, from ClassPass was 
to really listen to your customers and to be talking to them all the time. So, uh, you know, making sure that when people are emailing in to support that you're reading all of those emails and that as that, that number of emails starts to get too high, that you have good tracking so you can understand what the most common issues are, because that's a great way to inform uh, your product team of any of any confusion that there might be or any new features that might make a lot of sense or, or any ways to continue to grow the product. Mm-hmm. I, I have to believe that it it was instrumental in, well, let me just ask you, I mean, it ClassPass, for those listeners who don't know the business, is, is also a two-sided market, a platform for connecting, as I understand it, for connecting fitness instructors with, um, with consumers. And, and so in some ways, very similar in terms of the mm-hmm. basic problems you have to solve. Um, how important do you think that experience was? Or, or let me put it a different way. How, how much easier was it to raise the seed capital in the Series A, given that you'd already done it once? I think it definitely helped. Um, it certainly helped. I think that, uh, you know, when there's a track record, there was something for investors to look at and say, okay, you know, she had some experience and she's done something like this before. Um, you know, I think also just the relationships that I had from ClassPass. So, um, you know, our uh, one of our early investors was someone who I had met during the ClassPass days and who, who didn't invest, but they ended up um, leading our first round. And, you know, if I hadn't met them in the ClassPass days and, and kind of started to, to form a relationship with them, that probably wouldn't have been, uh, you know, they probably wouldn't have been an investor. Um, and same thing with, you know, another one of our seed investors was a class pass investor as well. So certainly, certainly was helpful to have that experience and that knowledge and to have built some of those relationships. Um, I want to ask you uh, uh, maybe a hard question, which is I, I've been lucky enough for this, this show today to have uh, two successful female entrepreneurs, both who've been successful raising venture capital. We've heard in the last few weeks and months about very challenging issues of bias in, in venture capital. What, what was your experience as a, as a female founder raising venture capital? Yeah, I mean, it's hard to say because I don't know what the experience would be like as, as a male founder, but mm-hmm. uh, I think it's challenging probably whether you're male or female. And I think there probably are things that are easier for males and there are probably things that are easier for females as well. Um, I try to just stay focused on on the business and try mm-hmm. to find people who are excited about the opportunity that we're going after and understand the vision for what we're trying to build. And, and I think usually, you know, those are the conversations where um, you can tell that they have the right level of enthusiasm and excitement. And, and I think, you know, that's really what matters and what I try to stay focused on. Mm-hmm. Um and then, and then lastly, I, the last question I think we have time for is a little bit about your own personal journey. It, it, you know, if I just look at your profile, you, you studied political science and religious studies as an undergraduate, and, you know, you're now a tech entrepreneur. Um, talk a little bit about that journey and maybe what advice you'd give for people who have similar educational background who want to do, want to be entrepreneurs. Yeah. So, you know, a liberal arts education for me was was really the right path. I think I learned how to be a critical thinker. I learned how to be a problem solver. Uh, you know, I went to a really small liberal arts college and developed a lot of confidence. I was quite shy in high school. And I think going to college, especially in a small setting for me, was a great way to um, to start to develop some confidence and to get involved and, and to actually um, you know, do things on campus besides just sports. So, you know, a lot of a lot of before college, I, I really just played sports. And so, um, I think I think the important thing is, you know, you don't have to have any set background to be an entrepreneur. You just have to have a willingness and a desire to solve problems. And 
uh, I think, a high bias for action and, and the mentality that the status quo doesn't have to be the way that it is and, and that, that you have the ability to change things. Well, that's, uh, that's, that's a nice pitch. And by the way, let's give a shout out to Colby College. I, was a, I, I grew up in New England and New Hampshire and so knew Colby well. Many of my friends went there. So a uh, little shout nice. out to, to Colby. Yeah, it was, um, it was a great experience. Yeah. Um, all right. We just have we just have uh, thirty seconds. Uh, Meal Pal. Did you have to pay for that name? We did. Yes. Okay. So you have. I, I noticed one similarity in your businesses. It's it was there are two word, two dictionary words put to bat, put together. Class Pass and Meal Pal. They're both they're both great names. Uh, regrettably, Mary, we're out of time. But thanks so much for joining us, and we really look forward to following your success. Thanks so much for having me. All right. You can visit MealPal online at www.mealpal.com. Great name, mealpal.com. Lunch for $6. Coming up, I'll be joined by Kabir Chopra, who's the co-founder at Burrow, an affordable furniture startup. I'm Carl Ulrich. I'm Vice Dean of Entrepreneurship and Innovation, and you're listening to Launchpad on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School, Sirius XM 111. Started out all alone, and the sun went down as across the hill, and the town lit up. The world got still.